0: This is episode 153. I'm your host Brian Williams. I am Adam Caesar. I'm Stephen Embry. And today we are discussing the original series episodes "The Corbomite Maneuver" and "The Menagerie," parts one and two, which we will do as one discussion. Here we go. The
1: Corbomite Maneuver, Season 1, Episode 10, Production Code 003, Original Air Date November 10th, 1966. Directed by Joseph Sargent, written by Jerry Soule, music composed by Fred Steiner. Guest cast include Clint Howard as Balak, Anthony Call as Lieutenant Bailey, Walker Edmonston as Voice of Balak, Ted Cassidy as Voice of Balak Puppet, Eddie Paskey as Lieutenant Leslie, and Bill Blackburn as Lieutenant Hadley. The
2: Enterprise finishes its third day of star mapping, when Navigator Lieutenant Dave Bailey spots a large spinning colored cube floating in space. First Officer Spock orders Helmsman Sulu to sound the alarm. Down in sickbay, Chief Medical Officer Dr. McCoy is giving Captain Kirk his quarterly physical exam. Spock informs Kirk about the cube, which is maintaining its position relative to the Enterprise. Kirk is annoyed that McCoy didn't mention the alert, but McCoy stubbornly states that he isn't about to jump at every flashing light on this ship.
1: Since the early years of space exploration, Earth vessels have had incorporated
2: into them a substance known as corbomite. It is a material and a device which prevents attack on us. If any destructive energy touches our vessel... A reverse reaction of
0: equal strength is created, destroying... You now have two minutes. Destroying the attacker. The Corbomite... Ah. Sorry, folks. (laughs) I have a cold still. Uh, The Corbomite Maneuver. Steve, why don't you start us on the Corbomite Maneuver?
1: Yeah, so... um... I think again. I, I think it goes without saying I say this is a memorable episode well nearly all of the <laughs> much of the original series are memorable episodes if you've seen it enough times but um, I remember this as having a bit of a different look of course this was the first uh, first episode shot after the second uh, pilot I believe first episode um, so it kind of there's you know some of the uniform look is a bit different you have a little bit of different behaviors um, of course Spock yelling and carrying on like he does um, while well, they're still kind of sorting out their characters, but I always remember this uh, episode because there's, you know, some bizarre special effects, the, the puppet, the <laughs> uh, Clint Howard, and all of that, I think it's, I think it's uh, fun, um, it's kind of an interesting, um, interesting take on, you know, what space travel can do to people, and that, you know, not everyone on the ship is, is a, perfect uh, perfect officer or whatever you have Bailey uh, kind of breaking up and uh, having issues throughout and then ultimately um, you know finding a place for himself and uh, I don't know I don't know what else to say about it I think it's um, it, it's interesting it's certainly memorable
0: like well, I can't imagine any anything more frightening than um, a rainbow box <laughs> right Cause you, don't, you don't know where that thing came from mm. <laughs> you don't know where it's you know where it's been it, it's it's frightening it is fright and the new vfx i thought made it scarier because you can actually see the rainbow reflection kind yeah of like the cells wild, yeah yeah frightening frightening uh adam uh, um
2: first... I, yeah i agree with that it's a, it, this is a very you memorable came with
0: me about the, the, the scary rainbow box the scary,
2: i don't i don't know if how frightened I was of the scary rainbow box but i can see where you're coming from there Brian. it's um, i'm sure you had trouble sleeping that night <laughs> but you can tell me that. You can tell me that later. Um, <laughs> we can do that off the air. Um, I agree with Steve. Yeah, this is actually a very memorable episode. There's a lot I like about this episode, and um, there's some things I don't like about it. Um, um, I'll tell you. It just seems like a lot of the time, there's a, not a lot going on. There's a lot, like a lot of long, dramatic. Um, scenes that just kind of keep going on and on i'll give it the example towards the end of the episode when they're being towed by the um the little part of the ship it just i don't know it just i don't know just seemed like there was a lot that didn't happen this episode but at the same time i do like a lot about this episode i like about the scenes with kirk and spock where kirk is trying to decide if they're going to go further into space and you know they have that discussion that's what they're out for out here for and that was one of the more memorable scenes that, that I liked in the episode. Um, the effects were really cool. The big, like, as you mentioned, the the rainbow cube was very cool. The big, the shot of the larger ship coming up on the Enterprise was pretty cool. I kind of wish they would have went to that shot one or two more times. I think we only saw it once when it first came up. But um, yeah, overall, it, it, I, I enjoyed the episode. I just kind of felt like they were, <laughs> the when, they, when they're the first time they're in the, um, they they're in there for eighteen hours and Sulu's passed out on the table. It just seemed kind of weird to me, but um,
0: yeah. Well, you know, it's it, it, like you were saying a minute ago, Stevie. Um, this being the first episode of the series, you know, that was really shot. Obviously, it was aired like what tenth, eleventh, tenth, tenth. Uh, yeah, because they were having problems. You know, the effects took them months to do. Um, but really, this is the first regular, true episode. And, I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff in there that obviously is earlier, the way they've lit the bridge, which I don't know, I kind of like, but I can, I can see how you wouldn't want to look at it that way, that kind of dark, more warlike look for three years. I can... Okay, I, I understand that. Um, I don't know, Uhura's uniform, whatever. There, there's lots of little stuff that they're still ironing out. But um, this episode really does... I think a good job of kind of balancing each character still features Kirk as the lead kind of showing you how the ship functions and, and, you know, um, it it really sets up uh, the McCoy, Spock, Kirk kind of triumvirate, even though those aren't the three that, that beam together at the end, but as far as who he solicits advice from, Obviously, I mean, he literally, you know, goes to Spock and wants, wants the information. Spock makes a, a joke about it. Um, but, uh, you know, the same thing with McCoy. All the the advice McCoy tries giving him about, is it Bailey? The mm-hmm. Yeah, a little PTSD there. <laughs> Again, sorry, folks, for my cold. I'm really hoping it's going to be gone in a couple of weeks for our next podcast. Uh, so this episode does a good job with that sort of thing. And... I like how playful it is at times. You know, I think it does a fun... There's, you know, the first time we see Kirk, you know, he's getting as physical. McCoy has some funny lines in there that if I jumped every time my light went off, I didn't talk to myself. That's pretty funny, actually. I mean, mm-hmm. it's obvious and simple nowadays by today's standards. But I, I it, made me, it made me chuckle. It still does. Um, you know, Spock he has some funny lines. Even Balak at the end, it is playful. And not because he looks like a kid. There's just something... There's something a little, little bit lighthearted about it, you know. Um, Thanks for letting me test you. Have, have a drink, you know. It does have its darker, heavier moments, um, uh, when you know Balok's vessel says it's going to destroy them, which kind of makes you wonder what would have happened if they had just said if it was a test, mm-hmm. you know, if they, if if he hadn't had his Corbomite maneuver. Uh you know, I wonder what would have happened um but the and then the other thing that this episode does really well, which too bad this episode couldn't have aired first as they planned um showing that it's like a an effects show out in space, you know there mm-hmm. really is, even if the ships aren't really doing much, you know there's a lot of ship stuff, there's a lot of exterior ship stuff. Um, there's that really long sequence where um, the Enterprise is trying to break free from uh, Belloc's little ship. Um, I don't think they would ever go on that long again, but I kind of—I actually like that sequence. Um, I mean, what, what did you guys think about this episode from a prototype for like you know action space battles? Do you, do you think there's anything here? Am I reading too much into that?
1: Yeah, I think that um, it's it's entertaining in that regard. It's it's unusual, certainly. They're up against a, an adversary that really has them, you know, well overpowered. Although they use the maneuver to uh, to pull away in the tractor beam. So I mean, yeah, if you think about from the perspective of we've never seen much of any space battle before you know if 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 you take that angle and then you know we've seen these kinds of things in subsequent episodes and subsequent series it is a bit of a prototype in that regard of the kinds of kinds of things you see um ships do um, enterprise uh, in star trek or other ships in in star trek so yeah, I thought it was entertaining, and I, I think it does, is a bit of a prototype in that regard.
2: I'd agree. There's a lot that you can kind of see or the direction that they're going to go. I, I, I enjoy the All Space episodes. Like I said, I did enjoy this one. I just kind of thought there were like a lot of long lulls in this episode that kind of where nothing was really kind of going on
0: did you say lols like lols there were a lot of long lol laugh out louds
2: <laughs> laugh out louds maybe like early on kirk ran around the ship with his shirt off it's always mm-hmm. fun to see nice glistening sweat for the ladies <laughs> back in the 60s <laughs> hmm. um yeah like you said the effects in this were really cool i i enjoyed it and you know we'll get to see more of that in the future for sure about more enterprise what they kind of do with it so that's what i'm really kind of looking forward to so i kind of felt like this was kind of the first time we got there was um what was it where no man has gone before there were some really cool effects that i really enjoyed um and in this episode i really enjoyed the some of the new effects that they had they yeah put you in. see we're all
0: watching the new effects on this mm-hmm. yeah.
2: so i mean um, other than that they've been kind of subtle which i which i like too i mean you know you just kind of get some new you know they kind of add to the matte paintings or kind of change some things around i actually watched a little bit of what they did in um the next episodes we'll be doing um so yeah it's very subtle i mean it's kind of subtle um even the planets aren't like as spect- spectacular as you think they would be that's kind of it fits the um what's the word i'm looking for just the look of, of the show they're not too t- yeah. you know the planets and everything like that and it, even the effects the the big um round spearship um it's not, they didn't like redo it. They just kind of added detail to it. So I've been enjoying that because it's not over the top. It's just subtle stuff that just makes it look a little bit better. That fits the, the formula of the show or the look and feel of the show of the time.
0: It says a lot to me, the way Baylock, the way, what he looks like and everything, how in kind of pop culture that's always been. Mm-hmm. I think that's just a testament to how effective it was casting little six year old Clint Howard, And, you know, dubbing him and whatever. But I guess that's what I wanted to talk about. Just last thing here is you you can look at the two pilots, which were the things that were shot before this, as kind of trying to define the way the show looked. And if you're comparing it from scratch, then, of course, those things are far more um, eventful. Uh, But this episode does a lot um, for the look of... Star Trek for me when I'm thinking about the original series I I think about Baylock before I think about Telosians so I like I like uh, I like the practical effects work here too even that Baylock Baylock's puppet you know that's something everybody recognizes and remembers okay maybe mm-hmm. because it was in the end credits for so long but yeah there's a lot there's a lot to like about this episode for me I mean I enjoy it yeah it's not I don't know. As far as the action, I, I would I would classify this one as more of a f- flat-out action um, episode in the lines, you know, in the likes of say Balance of Terror. Uh, and no, it's not as good as Balance of Terror or Doomsday Machine or whatever. But um, I've always I've always enjoyed this episode a lot. Um, there are a lot of those scenes, you know. There's the the McCoy Kirk sickbay scene. Uh, McCoy Kirk in is that kirk's quarters where he gets the salad which by the way i played this for my Mm. five-year-old and that was his biggest comment ew he has to eat salad (laughs) that that really that effect that that was horrific for him there's those those kirk spock moments that are so nice on the bridge isn't it inefficient to question you about things you've already decided or something to that effect Hmm. uh do you guys have a favorite moment in this episode
2: i like that i like the scenes with um kirk and spock where they're um that scene specifically that you were speaking of where Kirk's trying to decide whether they're, well, he's already decided, as as Spock points out. But I kind of think it gives a little bit of a, you know, premise for the show. You know, we're supposed to be explorers. We're supposed to be seeking out new life and, you know, and kind of gives the show its premise, what it talks about, you know, in the opening credits. Um, So I enjoyed that scene most, but yeah, there are a lot of good scenes. I like the scene between, kirk and mccoy there towards the end when mccoy's badgering him you know they're about to die and he's badgering him about a report about it that lieutenant and so they're kind of yapping back and forth yeah yeah
1: steve yeah i'd probably have to agree with the kirk and spock scene in the quarters because it's you know it's just kind of like people hanging out i think you talk about the uh, day in the life on the ship kind of thing and uh yeah i thought that was fun i enjoyed that but yeah it's it's all around there's a lot of good scenes, and it's it's quite good, especially considering how early on this was
0: shot in the grand scheme of things. So is this kind of an average episode for you guys?
2: I, it's hard for me to say because i there's a lot of things I like about this episode, and there's things that I don't. so I would I'd like to yeah, it's above average, but in I can the reasons they fix these things later on, um, you know, because like you said, this is their very early episode. So I like what um you, how you guys described it as kind of like a, a you know, a pilot for future action episodes.
1: Yeah, I'd say average for first season, maybe slightly
0: above average, and you take the whole series into account. Okay. what is the Corbomite maneuver really about?
2: What I think they're trying to say in this episode is, um, you know, it's very that
0: if you see a rainbow cube run, run away, run away. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um I think it tries to get to kind of the heart of the premise. It's about seeking out new life and, and learning about new life. You know, that they, they kinda drive that home at the end when Baylock wants um wants a crewman for himself, you know. Um we mentioned it before, Kirk and Spock, when they're on the bridge talking about if they're gonna go forward, you know, it's about exploring, it's about seeking out new life. Um and that that's their mission. So I kind of feel like that's kind of what the episode is about. Um Confronting the unknown, even if it's scary.
1: And I think, in addition, it's also the kind of ingenuity and imagination of um, that we all can demonstrate when needed. Uh, given the title of the episode and what ultimately he does to get there, I think that alone doesn't make the episode about you know poker over chess or whatever. But it, you know the fact that the alien life appreciates that and appreciates the spirit and all of that in, in humans. It, I think that that.
0: That does lead credence to that. All right, Um, I think I yeah I would agree with you guys uh, for both for what it's about, but also in the quality. Yeah, to me it's it's um it's a step above average, uh, and mostly it's um, interesting uh, to me just for the history of Trek and for the the creation of what Star Trek is. (laughs) Okay, let's do six degrees for the Cobra Mite Maneuver. Hmm. All right, so I've got a couple of character questions today. I think those are going to be the hard ones. All right, Adam, you want to go first or second?
2: Um, I guess I'll go first.
0: All right. Ted Cassidy provides the voice of Baylock's puppet. We just saw him play what character in What Are Little Girls Made Of? Big guy.
2: Ted Cassidy, was he the, um... Oh, was he Mud?
0: No. Steve? Is the, is the name uh, Ruck? You are correct. It was Ruck. Uh, probably most famous for um, Lurch, right? He played Lurch. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Our listeners were like, what is he talking about? <laughs> it's all pops and buzzes uh, and gibberish. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's just <laughs> gibberish. i those words. Okay, Steve. Mm-hmm. Clint Howard. Clint Howard plays Baylock, the little kid that isn't. He played the Ferengi Muck in an episode called Acquisition. In which Star Trek series
1: mm. uh, was that uh, Voyager?
0: No. Um, yeah, you know what? I gave I gave Steve Adams. So Adam, do you have an answer for that one?
2: Is it Deep Space Nine?
0: No, it's Enterprise. It was their one their one Ferengi episode, uh, oh. right? Clint Howard. That's right. He did do a DS9 episode, uh, that one where they go back to Earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and back in time.
2: Talk a lot about baseball.
0: And talk about, uh, yeah. All right. um, (laughs) uh, All right. So it's uh, Steve 1, Adam none. Moving on.
1: The Menagerie, Parts 1 and 2, Season 1, Episodes 11 and 12, Production Code 16. Original Air Dates November 17th and 24th, 1966. Directed by Mark Daniels and Robert Butler. Written by Gene Roddenberry. Music composed by Alexander Courage. Guest cast include Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Christopher Pike, Malachi Throne as Commodore Jose Mendez, Susan Oliver as Vina, Sean Kinney as Fleet Captain Pike, Julie Parrish as Lieutenant Piper, Major Barrett as Number One. Peter Durea as Lieutenant Jose Tyler, John Hoyt as Dr. Philip Boyce, Adam Rourke as CPO Garrison, Hagen Beggs as Lieutenant Hanson, Laurel Goodwin as Yeoman J.M. Colt, and Meg Wiley as the Keeper. The Enterprise
2: arrives at Starbase 11 in response to a subspace call First Officer Spock reported receiving from former Captain of the Enterprise, Christopher Pike, under whom Spock had served. Captain Kirk... And Spock meet the Starbase commander, Mendez, who doubts that Pike had sent the message, given that Pike was in a severe burn accident and confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life, and unable to communicate save through answering yes or no questions with the aid of a device in the wheelchair that is operated by his brainwaves. Pike refuses to communicate with anyone except Spock, and Kirk and Mendez leave to discuss the situation. Once they are gone, Spock informs Pike he will be taking him regardless of Starfleet's orders. He overwhelms Pike's guards and takes him aboard the Enterprise, and through a series of deceptions, he convinces the crew he is in command and sets course to Talos IV, a forbidden planet.
0: Receiving transmissions from Talos IV. And the images we've been seeing are Are coming from Talos IV, sir. Captain Kirk is hereby relieved. You are ordered to assume command
2: of the Enterprise. Disable vessel if necessary to prevent further contact. Message sign, Consul Starfleet Command.
0: Mr. Spock, you're aware of the orders regarding any contact with Talos IV. You have deliberately invited the death penalty. You've not only finished yourself, Spock, but you finished your captain as well. Adam, why don't you start us on the Menagerie?
2: The Menagerie, um... A very memorable episode. I like it. And a very creative episode, taking um, the original pilot and fitting it into a regular season episode. Um, because the never never aired, as I recall. Am I correct in that assumption?
0: Ah, uh, the cage uh, never aired. That's correct.
2: The cage, my bad. So the cage never aired. So it was, um, yeah. I thought it was a very creative way to get the cage into the into the season. Um, the cage is a very very good episode. Um, very good pilot. I thought. Um, I thought it was very well cast. Um, Pike. Um, is a very good character. He's a very memorable character. You know, you see him in the the new movies. Um, which was really nice to see. Um, and it just kind of brings. A little. It also brings history to the to the to the show to Star Trek. Um, just in this early on in its in its season and its in its run here, um, you find out a lot about Spock, and his his loyalty to his former captain. You get to see that through his actions, but not only that, you get to see it in the in the scenes that we see from the cage in this in this episode.
0: Yeah. So of course, this episode was um, it was an effort to save money, basically um, by using this old footage, and, you know, they, they really kind of wrote and shot one episode's worth of a new show, and then got two episodes out of it, so it saved them money, and, um, time, you know, um, I do think it's an ingenious use of that, I can't imagine watching The Cage and thinking, how can I use this? And what kind of story can I come up with, you know, to be able to use this on the other show? I mean, it's 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 really brilliant. And it's one of those things that it's so plainly Gene Roddenberry just being ahead of everybody else, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things that really makes you impressed with, with Gene Roddenberry. And I actually think it's pretty entertaining and pretty good. It doesn't feel like... I don't know, like you're watching a clip show or something. Like, if you didn't know, if you didn't know, you would probably think, well, they shot that and made it look like it took place years before, you know?
2: Right. You would probably think that. It's also a very good um, courtroom episode.
0: First time they do that. I've talked a lot on our show about how much I love Star Trek court-martial type uh, episodes. Of course, there's an original series episode, uh, flat out court-martial coming up, that I love, love, love. Um, plenty from the other series too, Mesh of a Man, etc. the episode as well. But yeah, there's a lot that I that I really enjoy about. It. And then of course the only two part of the original series ever did. Um, there's a lot more for me to get into. But uh, Steve, what are what are some of your first thoughts here on the Menagerie?
1: Oh yeah, I um, I think this is this is great, and it, I agree with everything about how ingenious it was to use this footage in this way. And of course, um, for you know from When this originally aired, for years on end, it was the only way to see some of this footage. And what's interesting, of course, is since then, um, you know, the the footage in this episode of The Cage, I've seen twice as much as any other original series episode, probably. Because on the most part, I see them all. I don't just pick and choose. I mean, some I've seen more than others. But on the whole, I've seen them through straight runs through all of them. So it's very familiar. And, And there's also i i that you know adam mentioned this the the notion of history i mean star trek did such a good job so early on in establishing background in history um we mentioned that also with uh, where no man has gone before the second pilot how by having that you know it 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 there was a past and other crew people and this is what happened and so on and this of course even more so reinforces that and uh I think it's also really interesting to see uh, Spock in this and his actions. Obviously, he's the only one in both time periods here and see his development. But also, you know, the actions he's taking uh, for Pike and how he justifies it. And And I think it it's so early on in the, in the whole series and in Star Trek in general lays to rest this notion of, of, of Vulcan's not having emotion. I mean, I don't know why anyone ever would have taken that stance after seeing this because... You're you're doing this out of sure loyalty to a former captain, but you know if you strictly went on uh, logic and loyalty, it's like that doesn't justify those actions. Those are that's
0: um, mutiny or or disobeying a current order. Let's and get so at on. that for a second. Is he? Do, do you yeah. think if he if he was not half human, if he was full Vulcan, would he still do this?
1: No. No. No.
0: Okay. Well, that, I, I, I don't think, it. I mean, having
1: said that, we don't want to stereotype, I mean, you know, we saw on Enterprise, T'Pol did a lot of things that mm-hmm. we, you know, wouldn't characterize a standard, full-blooded Vulcan doing, but I, I don't think, you know, this is a, this is a it's a very, um, there's a lot of emotion and uh, uh, passion, love, whatever you want to say in these kinds of actions that you can't justify through some kind of logic, no matter how you, how you spin it, you know, so. Yeah.
2: I think what we learned, yeah, I think what this kind of reinforces about Vulcans, and it's what it's what's been done, you know, throughout every series, is how fiercely loyal they are to, um, to their to their crewmates. They're like family. You know, you see it, you see it through, see it th- throughout, through every you know major Vulcan character. Um, to, you mentioned to Paul, she's fiercely loyal to, um, to Archer. We got to see a lot of that. Um, Tuvok fiercely loyal to Janeway. Um, there's not a prominent Vulcan in, um, next gen or, um, DS nine. But I mean, you know, you see that, you see that quality with Vulcan. So I don't know, maybe, I guess it just kind of depends on the relationship But you know, it seemed, you know, if you were to describe one of the characteristics of a Vulcan, I would say is they're fiercely loyal to their friends and family. So
0: I do want to talk for a second about this, um, this concept of this episode really establishing ...that Star Trek has a history... Uh, I, ...I remember I mentioning a long time ago... ...on our podcast... ...gosh, I don't remember what it was... ...but I saw... ...I've seen Scott Bond... ...several times... ...he's the Star Trek fan, author... Um, ...pretty interesting guy... ...he's written some good books... Um, ...the only book really on the music of Star Trek... ...which is a fantastic book... ...it's out of print but you can still find it... ...it's really good... ...anyway... ...he was the first person I saw... ...really put forward this concept of uh the menagerie establishing so much of what we all take for granted in Star Trek which is this idea of, of the hist- this this pre-existing history uh, and it's really the menagerie that that did that um, and I think that's it's really incredible for a lot of reasons one this was really unique so at the time there weren't a lot of other you know, shows or movies or whatever that, that that approached it that way. I mean, I'm trying to think of other stuff from the 60s. James Bond, that was probably the biggest thing, the biggest, you know, cultural entertainment thing. James Bond isn't about, I don't know, M- MI6 or something. It's James Bond. So it's, that's one thing, is how unique this was, this concept. Second, I've talked a lot about The way that I love Star Trek really being, you know, that I'm a trekker much more than I'm a trekkee. I I want to believe in this universe, and we talk about, you know, just day in the life kind of stuff and imagine that this universe is real and this is where I want to live there and walk around on the ship. And um, so much of the way that I love Star Trek is because it presents this universe as living and breathing and existing before and existing into the future. Um, and that's the thing that we kind of take for granted in Star Trek. But again, you, you can trace those roots back to the menagerie. This episode does a lot to establish that, that Star Trek has this history.
2: Going back to the, the cage, you know, I think I, I like some of the sets in the cage better than I do on the, you know, once, once they got the series going, I'm, I liked um, Pike's quarters more than what they, what they had going on in the series. Um, was it the the conference room? I thought it was a better set. I was, I just kind of wondered why they decided to change that up as much as they did, you know, cause they had the, they had the ceiling shot. They had the, the round stuff on the ceiling. Um, it's kind of funny. I was, when I was watching the scenes with um Pike and the doctor in his quarters it reminded me of the scene from the movie that we just saw, um, Beyond. Yeah, Kirk. I think that was
0: that was intentional.
2: I mean, you know, even the quarters were kind of similar, and it just kind of felt the same.
0: Well, uh, actually, now that I think about it, it also maybe it was a reference to um, the Kirk Bones conversation in Gosh, Star Trek Two. I don't know. I'm sure a listener is going to write in and say, "No, it was this," and I'm sure they will be right. Well, yeah, yeah, there, yeah,
2: there were several scenes where they, the two of them, had a drink. I'm sure throughout the years.
0: Hey, that'll be on um, um, Blu-ray in just a couple of weeks, and then we can watch it until we have it memorized. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't do that. I don't do that.
2: Not at all. Um, He's no. already got it memorized, folks. He doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> all <right>.
0: uh, <laughs> I still laugh out loud every time. The women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I guess I'll probably do that forever. That's okay. Um. Well,
2: well, I saw my laugh out moment was when um, the uh, Rachel Barrett was referred to as a computer. I was like, that is just kind of funny. Rachel Barrett? Yeah, Rachel Barrett.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a moment right near the end when he says, let's get back to the ship. Was that like eighty uh, overdub with somebody else? Because they was that the one line they changed to make it work as a, you know, not a standalone episode? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's the first time I've ever thought this.
1: I'm not sure. I didn't really... I didn't know catch that. Because so it kind of didn't sound I'm like sure him. Saying. It sounded like somebody right.
0: else. Could be. And maybe that's not what he says in the original Cage episode. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I really like that Pike and Vina and the horse all get to have a picnic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Usually you wouldn't invite the horse. But here they do. And I think that's really special if you're... So,
2: Brian, um, tell me the story. Why did um, Jeffrey... Why was he? Why did he not come back?
0: I don't think he really wanted to, no, nah, it's been a while since I've read, all, all that information is out there, but it has been a while since I've read it, so I might be remembering it wrong, but I don't think he was terribly excited in the first place to do the show. Uh, and when the network wanted to do another pilot, I don't think they said you have to replace him, but they weren't they weren't like beating down his door and he really didn't want to do it anyway. Um, remember, you know, he was, he was, he was, he made a couple of like big movies at the time. Like it seemed like he was going to have like a real movie career. Mm -hmm. Most of that stuff didn't really pan out. But if I recall correctly, he died in a car crash in the early seventies. So before Star Trek got big, Mm -hmm. um, I remember, gosh, I guess I should have looked this up before we had this conversation, but I remember his wife had something to do with all of this as well. Like, um i don't know maybe she didn't want him to do it either but yeah i can't now i can't even remember the. the he did a, he did a more than one movie but the biggest movie he did was that movie i think where he played jesus
2: well the most i remember the searchers with john mm-hmm. wayne was the one i remember right? the most.
0: but he he didn't lead that one but right. yeah yeah obviously we're all happy that it turned out the way it did uh honestly bill shatner is so good um and even in this episode where you don't see them together, but you see them almost back to back.
2: You got a good comparison.
0: Just by himself. Yeah. Like by himself, Hunter is, yeah. Hey, sure. He's good. He's good. But you see that and you just think they could have done two or three years with him. And it would have just been another show on TV that we, everyone would have forgotten about 10 years later. Uh, but with William Shatner.
2: Yeah. He plays such a great Kirk and he gets it. And you know, it seems like Kirk to me um, or Bill Shatner, he got Kirk quickly. It didn't seem like there was a lot of, I mean, you know, it, you know, even in the first episodes, I mean, you, it didn't feel like he was searching for the character or feeling it out. I mean, I think you get a little bit of that with um, Nimoy and Spock because it's a, it's a more complex character, emotion, not emotion. Um, um, So yeah, I kind of feel like Bill just, he nailed Kirk right off the bat and it's just set the tone for it.
0: And that's, that's kind of how I feel. That's what I was getting at earlier, too. That's how I feel about the horse. <laughs> <laughs> you think the horse nailed it? Yeah. Nailed like, I think they should have brought the horse back, really. <laughs> Maybe they did. Everybody remembers the Pike Place scene uh, v- with Vina the Orion slave girl. Hmm. Actually, you know, it's it's funny. The, the thing I remember the most about the cage somehow and the menagerie, I don't know, this is going to sound really stupid, but for all the times I've seen it, it's that moment when he... There, in Pike's place, and Pike gets up and he runs out and he goes into, he goes like through a door and he, and he runs into like a, basically a wall mm-hmm. and you hear the source music, you hear like the the the, the, the music, da, 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 mm-hmm. da, you hear that still playing but it gets softer because he's in another room, and he goes up to and he's like hits a wall basically and he turns around and now there's another wall and then music goes away, and then Vena comes in, mm-hmm. still as a slave girl, right? right? There's something so to me scary and creepy about those moments because it's like, remember these Telosians are completely creating this all in your head and they can do whatever they want. And how frightening is it to be standing there and turn around and there's a wall, you know, like Mm -hmm. for that to really happen. I I was playing a a game in virtual reality recently and there's a moment where they do something like that. And it is so disconcerting. I don't know. It's, it doesn't, your brain doesn't make sense of it. And I remember even as a little kid seeing this episode and thinking how freaky that was. It's a silly little thing, um, but I've always remembered it, you know, and it makes you think about this incredible power the Telosians have, you know, the, the doctor, gosh, I think it starts with a B. I don't remember who, what's the doctor's name? What's Pike's Boyce. doctor? Boyce, Boyce, right. Boyce. Um, it, how smart is he? Cause he's, he seems like the first one that realizes, yeah. uh, these telosians they can, they can really cause some trouble. That's one of those. Yeah. Because they have this incredible power. Um, and he's the first one to, to realize it and talk about it. So there's a lot of of meaty stuff in this episode. Obviously, we can do what it's about, but it's it's it's. I feel like the two stories are pretty well integrated. I never. I never question that, um, but I'm I'm interested to hear what you guys say as far as what it's about. Whether you separate out these stories, so. What's it about?
2: I think you can kind of go to the core, you know, Spock's loyalty, you know, it's, um, you know, loyalty to your, your crewmates. I think that's kind of, there's a, there's a message in there about it, um, that he would do anything for this captain that he served with for so many years. Um, you know, I think we've mentioned before, there's a lot of history in this, um, this episode that kind of helps set up, um, not only the Federation, but the Enterprise, it gives the Enterprise more texture, um, the ship itself, um, you know, makes it feel like more of a character. Um, so those are kind of some of the things that I took away from the episode.
1: Yeah, I agree that I mean at the crux of this, and we alluded to it, is the is Spock and the, his character and what he's doing for his captain. But I think in terms of the contrast between the cage and the menagerie, I think what's interesting is, it's like, if you see him like alone, and then see how they end and all this kind of thing, it's kind of like the cage plays on the the f- plays more on the the fear and kind of the uh, how how twisted and scary it is to have to be have a, if there was an alien control they could basically make you think and see whatever you want to see, even though the cage ends in a in a fairly upbeat way because of what they do for Vena. But then the menagerie, since it's kind of a it's a it's a new beginning for Pike, even though he's been through this horrific accident, he can't communicate, he's, you know, paralyzed, and so on, and he can get that life back, it's kind of a, a positive spin on, you know, we all live in our heads, it's all in our heads, everything's in our head, you know, so it's kind of like, there is a, there's also a, a good way to look at being able to manipulate one's mind and and be where
0: you want to be and see what you want to see. And I think that's what makes the two episodes different in a way. Was Pike saying... When, when, when Kirk... Excuse me, Spock. When Spock initially finds Pike and Pike... This is at Starbase uh, 11. And Pike just keeps saying no, no. is Do you think... Is he saying no because he's worried that... Because he knows that this could be, you know, um, a death sentence or something uh, according to Starfleet uh, um, for... Spock is he saying no because he doesn't want to get Spock into trouble? I always assumed that was the case. Yeah,
2: that's what I took from it as well.
0: Okay, it's not because he would have something against taking advantage of the Telosian's ability to. I suppose we could, because because you get a little yeah. bit of the sense if you you know when you're thinking about the cage stuff that he recognizes uh, the dangers in this and the the Talosian's abilities. It is true. I mean, the Pike
1: in the cage. not only does he recognize that he has a distaste for it he does he does not like the notion of you know uh, you know when when vena's saying oh who do you want me to be i'll be anything you want me to be no that's not an answer you know he 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 doesn't he doesn't dig that you know so i see what you're saying that it's an interesting thing to ponder is would would pike really want this what does he want to live like that you know given what we saw of his character in the cage footage. Yeah, it's interesting.
2: I think they kind of set that up. Um, you know, the cage does it. They show it in the Menagerie here. I think he has genuine feelings for Vina.
1: Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah.
2: Obviously, at the end, he has a choice whether he wants to go or not. They, they kind of make it clear. Do you want to go or do you want to stay? And He chooses to go. So,
0: so pretty cool. A, g- a good episode that establishes so much of what Star Trek kind of means to me and, and the, the very things that allow me to love it in the way that I do. I can't imagine... I can imagine Star Trek... Here's the highest compliment I can pay to the Menagerie, parts one and two. I could imagine all of Star Trek without every episode we've talked about before this one. But if you take this episode away, I think all of Star Trek transforms Mm. in a way that that I wouldn't like. And that's about the highest compliment that I can pay this episode. So, above average... Significantly above average. A really good episode that occasionally borders on great, but so weighty and so powerful for what Star Trek is uh, that I have to love it. (laughs) All right, let's do six degrees for the menagerie. Uh, Let's see, Adam went first last time, so Steve, Mm -hmm. you get the character question. It's a tough one. Mm. All right. Malachi Throne plays Commodore Mendez. In Star Trek The Next Generation, he plays a Romulan senator that lures Spock to Romulus for nefarious purposes in the episodes Unification 1 and 2. Name his Romulan character. It's a senator, a Oh my gosh, I thought that was so hard and you got it without hesitating. (laughs) Bam! Oh my lord. Uh, Adam Majel Barrett plays number 1, Captain Pike's number 1. What's the next this is a weird question what I asked. Okay. What's the next live action Star Trek role she performed after the original series? So I'm not necessarily saying a different role or whatever. I'm not saying the character she plays. I'm just saying the next Star Trek thing she did, the next live action Star Trek thing she did after the original series. Motion picture? Yep, motion picture. That wasn't even a very well-asked It was not a good question. I take responsibility for that <laughs> crap. <laughs> uh, well, you know, there was a ball game and a debate at the same time. What are you going to do, folks? Cubs won, <laughs> by the way. It's 2-2. Two, two. Oh, my lord. Okay. It will now be a best-of-three series. Yep, yep. Hopefully, the audio quality of this episode is improved. We are trying a new method to fix some of the problems we've had in the past. But as I was joking before we started, even if it is, I still have a cold, so I will sound funny regardless. Um, So sorry for that, but hopefully it sounds great. Man, we're already through Menagerie. Golly, that worked out for us to be able to do that in one discussion. I didn't exactly. I mean, of course I planned it so that we would have that together. Have you guys ever watched the original series in production order?
1: No. No. I don't,
0: no, not all the way through. So that corporate maneuver is the first one you watch, you know, after the pilots.
2: I think the last time when I first watched it on DVD, I actually watched the Cage first, and then started the series.
1: Mm.
2: But That's close as I've come.
1: I've seen, I probably, yeah, I've probably seen bits of it in that order, but not, not the whole thing. No, I'm just so used to broadcast order. That's what
0: I've always done. Doesn't it doesn't. It feels weird to me to do anything else. I don't know why. <sighs> okay, folks. Thank you so much for spending an hour with us. We are excited to do the next three episodes in two weeks. And until then, you can follow us on Facebook, Facebook facebook.com slash Trek Companion. Our Twitter handle is at Trek Companion. You can send us an email, companion at gmail.com. Um, let us know uh, what you like, what you don't like, what do you want to change? I don't know. Haven't had an email in a while. Let's see. Um, also, you can... Also, you can leave us uh, reviews on iTunes. That helps people find us. So that's really great. Um, so, once again, thanks for joining us. And until next time, take it easy. Bye, guys. See ya. I passed it.